0: Palladium podcast. My name is Alexander Gelland. I recently joined the Palladium team as deputy editor, and today I'm going to be talking with Charlie Smith, who wrote the 2020 article, Confronting Modernity Means Overcoming Humanism. You can find it in our latest print edition, Palladium 5 Centralizing Society, which you can find at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. Uh, Charlie, welcome. You've been on a podcast with us before. Uh, You talked to uh, Wolf and 2020 about cryptocurrency, I think, and I'm sure we'll get to that too. But before we get started, how about you uh, just give us an introduction for yourself?
1: Sure. Yeah, good to be here. Um, My name is Charles. I spend most of my time in the kind of Web3 space, particularly at the intersection of gaming and Web3. And I think most of my projects are sort of really oriented towards trying to forge a new sort of digital communitarianism, trying to create platforms, uh, rewards and spaces that enable people to rally together, create and affiliate with each other in new ways on the internet. That's really what I'm most interested in these days. And yeah, so I'm kind of laser focused on that. Um, and that's that's really me. I was, I'm from the UK originally. I was born in London. My family all lives in Scotland. My parents and I moved to the US when I was a little kid. And yeah, I live in Texas now in Austin and yeah i don't have too much to complain about things have
0: been good cool yeah i'm sure your uh, crypto your crypto projects will kind of come up into the general themes of the article but um you know i guess just to start out with it has this like kind of very ominous title right confronting modernity means overcoming humanism you know i think the kind of gut reaction to this would be you know isn't isn't being modern about you know progress and you know the internet and increased life expectancies and Why is that something we need to confront? Like, what's wrong with it? And, you know, what is, what's wrong with being a human? What's wrong with humanism? What am I, if not a human? So, you know, what can you really tell us about that?
1: Sure. So I think the plus side of that title is that it's somewhat provocative. So that's always good. So we'll get some play. Um, The downside is that I think the word humanism has sort of grown and become so broad that people associate it with just sort of liking people and sort of like kindness which is i hope fairly obviously not what anyone should be against uh and and then the piece i think reflects that too and so the way i at least define humanism is more as a thesis about how human life interacts with the modern condition and with the world and that i see humanism as sort of a conceit or like a very kind of a philosophy that is sort of like a human agency maximalist, right? So it's saying that, I think it was Kant that said, and I think I quote in the piece, um, that modernity is when humans took the reign of history and started to direct affairs and be able to control their environment and that it put humans kind of in the driver's seat overall. And for me, I see a lot of problems and a lot of faulty thinking that ultimately comes down to presuming that people are in the driver's seat over things which they are not. And so the alternate view of modernity that I throw out in the piece is that the modern condition, rather than being when humans kind of took the reins of history in some ways, there was maybe a brief period of that where people are building things they've never built before, they have the opportunity to sort of reform their societies along ideals that reflect their values. There's sort of like a, you know, There's a period of perhaps like the 18th century through, you could say, World War II, perhaps, but I think you could argue it ended sooner, in which people thought, okay, we're in control now. We can have these ideas and we can just sort of uh, direct society the way we want it to go. The argument I make, which is one echoed by many of the thinkers in the piece, is that modern society is actually a period where things become dramatically more complex and because of the complex nature of modern society the kind of endless feedback loops shifting landscape it's almost more like a return to nature where we actually should expect to have less control over what goes on and we should really approach it with humility and say hey here are things that we have real control over these are things we should focus on but the idea that we've taken the reins of history and that now everything will will be able to bend everything to our will is completely wrong and actually a destructive belief and so that's sort of what it is. The piece is more a call for humility than it is like some sort of like anti-human thing.
0: hmm So the the sort of centralizing tend of the past two hundred years kind of came from this humanist impulse to sort of take the reins of history, and you know create a society wherein we we have we're able to adjust all these different uh, econometric Factors, you know, we're able to measure and control the quality of life. We're able to distribute food and build societies where places would be otherwise un- inhospitable. And this sort of call to humility could be interpreted as like a kind of degrowth in a way, or a kind of you know this uh, you know in Asim he talks about, you know, building resilience and communities and localism, but I think that could be interpreted too at the same time as sort of a withdrawal from like grand projects. Or do you think differently?
1: I do. I, I think differently. So I, I see it as a warm humility that asks us to focus on the things that we can control and stop indulging grand projects that don't make sense. Uh, and so like, I think modern history is littered with countless examples of these. So take the sort of like free trade kind of absolutist positions of the nineties and you know, that began in the seventies. These were ideas that people felt as though they had unlocked some deterministic laws of how societies worked. Uh, They had a few kind of flawed axioms around how uh, gains from trade would lead to wider prosperity. They felt they had all the variables. And then now we're in a world where we're just witnessing all of the uh, clear problems that have arisen from that. Not to say that you shouldn't have free trade, but that to believe you've discovered some axioms that can absolutely direct you forward is wrong. And so what we see is like, okay, you engage in free trade, sounds good, gains to trade, and then you spawn several geopolitical rivals causing the risk of war to rise and not fall, unlike you know, the sort of David Friedman, world is flat sort of view. Uh, and In addition, you end up hollowing out the industrial base, inequality in society rises, and a lot of really unpredictable things happen. And the thing that past, you know, societies, which did engage in great projects would have understood was to have some humility about these sort of things. So if you took like, if you were, you know, say we take like ancient Rome and we look at, there's a deep agnosticism to how the world works that they were willing to embrace. They didn't believe the world was one continuous cosmos governed by the same rules, they believed they could encounter environments that could work very differently. They might come to another society and things might function differently. Natural forces might even be different. Some of that agnosticism is incorrect now, but much of it is true. And that was a society that engaged in truly grand projects, but that I believe did so with some measure of humility. Uh, and that if someone you know, in ancient Rome said, I've discovered that free trade is, the right way to go and that we should actually just, you know, not protect any local industries and we should lean all the way into this idea, you know, they would be like rightfully laughed at. Uh, but now we have such a belief in the intellect that we think we can discover these things and understand these complex forces when in reality we can't. There's a sort of arrogance that's developed from the progress of science where we you know, see that we understand, you know, physical and mechanical forces and then we believe that wisdom translates to uh, much more complex social systems. So I, I see it as being, you can engage in grand projects with humility. Uh, there is a way to do that.
0: I see. And, you know, on the subject of these complex societies, like, you know, just speaking about world trade and the free trade over protectionism, those are both assuming the continuity of nation states as societies that are like discrete legible units that interact with one another. But in this world of increasing complexity, you know, what kind of new social and political units are, you know, capable of being formed? Because, you know, people's identities aren't really related to their sort of rooted, you know, peasant cultures anymore. You know, the sort of uh, national traditions that grounded a lot of the creation of these nation states in the first place. A lot of people are, Having their culture shaped from this, you know, global internet culture or entertainment complex that sort of spans the entire globe. And at the same time, people have the ability to carve out niches for themselves on the internet. So, you know, what kind of other ways of organizing people outside of this old system of hierarchy would you say we're capable of doing though?
1: Yeah, yeah. So let me first motivate that a little by saying that, I think if there's one, you know, sort of like phenomena that we should incorporate into our thinking that calls for humility, it's that modern life has been characterized by emergence of radically new forms. That if you were sitting and looking at a chessboard of how things might play out in say the 1700s and the nation state is a sort of new and weird formation around absolute monarchies it looks like it wouldn't you wouldn't know what it would become uh you then look forward 100 years or 200 years and you would see it as this sort of like totally new form it would look very alien and then so you take something like the nation stages for example and there's a sort of process by which people naturally look back and try to make the existing forms look eternal because if you admit that they're con- contingent, they lose legitimacy. So there's just like a natural process by which people look back at these things that we take for granted and then try to ascribe to them that they're like absolute and must stay. And so part of the motivation for humility here is saying, no, You know, history has been really characterized by especially modern history, by the emergence of new forms, new social forms. And so if you're trying to think about the future and how to navigate it, you should be prepared for emergence, you should be keeping an eye out for it. So on the topic of kind of how people associate and how that might change over time, it's obviously a hard one to predict. But what I would say, the thing I'm kind of most excited about, or I see the most like sort of potential in, and the, the thing I'd be rooting for as well, is that we kind of the high modernist, you know, period that we're sort of now exiting or have exited, in which people had maximal faith and the nation state, nation state, is at the peak of its powers. We're engaging in grand projects to change society—the sort of dreams of every 20th-century autocrat and even like liberal order. That, to me, has lost. It feels as though it has lost credibility, and people see that governments are not able to predict and adapt to these new emergent forms. And the thing that is the pessimistic case for the, you know how you could react to that is say, okay, our most you know important way of coordinating through the nation state appears less effective now. Are we in a state of decline? Possibly, but the thing that I root for is that we could see a re-emergence of bottom-up association that if you look at early America and it was really just a place patched together by churches, mutual aid, uh, probably ethnic groupings, and that this was how society was built, it was much more bottom-up um, and I think the internet Provides a new venue for bottom up association that hasn't been fully realized yet. And so, you know, not to immediately get into my, you know, professional stuff, but I see Web3 or crypto as providing these sort of costly social signals that people can coordinate around that brings trust and reduces noise in a very noisy, costless internet. Um, and so, I'm just very excited about all manner of bottom-up associations. And I believe like web three will be a major accelerant for that people's ability to form sort of guilds or associations. Those could be religious or secular. They could be corporate or more for nonprofit. They could be around certain cultural affinities. That's what I think. I think we've hit this max period of cynicism about top-down organization. And it's gotten really old and most people are thinking, okay, what are you going to do about it? and i really that's what i'm most excited about is a new a renewed bottom up uh, affiliation
0: and coordination we could totally talk more about that because um one thing i was just thinking about was how you know you talk about manuel delanda in your piece and one thing he points out in uh, a thousand years of nonlinear history is how human beings don't really have fixed uh, social organizations or at least the way they act within them is sort of dependent on the outside forces. There's a kind of phase shift they undergo like water. When the temperature, when the ambient temperature is increased, they turn to steam and then they take on entirely new properties of behavior or when the temperature decreases, they freeze and they they come closer together. And this sort of phase shift is something I think is very interesting when it comes to the internet and you know the potentials of web 3 because we're only just beginning to see how humans behave differently when they're kind of put under those circumstances or environments so how would you how would you sort of describe firstly the, the actual social the social organization of people on web 3 so far and i guess sort of the different kinds of behaviors latent in humans that are kind of brought out by that form of social organization
1: so First, the thing I'll say is kind of, you know, couching it in the history of the internet, because I think that Web3 is just a sort of extension or accelerant to that. And so what I'll say is that what we've seen with it, like the important thing is not to be fully jaded by what we've seen so far from the internet. So you can think of it like this, that if we said like written language, uh, like what role did that play in human coordination? How did that change over time? It basically adapted over time as the costs to producing and distributing uh, written language declined and so there's a long period where it's you know there's a scribinal culture Mesopotamia to the Vatican um, a long period in which it's very costly to reproduce it and that the written language really just reinforced the power of say a kingdom or a nation-state um, and then you've got the Reformation as this like hallmark moment where the costs to, because of movable type, the costs of reproducing written language declined rapidly. And suddenly the tool that reinforced top-down power became a source of new competition for it and a new source of bottom-up affiliation, right? So you have like, if you take Martin Luther, what he did sort of levying complaints against the Vatican was not unheard of but what was new was that the university that he was at had a movable type machine and that his the the complaints he lodged got widely distributed and that just simply as an emergent factor without too much intention made it a different act right and so with the internet i think what you're seeing is this transition happening at hyperspeed where initially you know the internet exists there are blogs sure things aggregate around big content producers, groups like Facebook or the New York times being able to distribute. And then what we've seen is that now we're in a world where you and I casually hop on a podcast and all the tools have been more or less democratized. And that has led to a period of like a good amount of dissent and sort of, uh, division as well, just like it did, you know, during the reformation. And now I look at web three and I say. Okay, we're in a situation where information is so cheap to produce that there's just an immense amount of noise. And it's very hard for people to separate signal from noise. And what I think web three fundamentally does is it introduces consequence to the internet where let's take as an example, let's look at the NFT kind of movement. If you own an NFT, that's worth the price of a small car or a laptop. It's a very costly social signal and people take the opinions of people who own the same NFTs as them or ones that are high prestige much more seriously than others. And so you take something like Crypto Twitter, which is probably one of the noisiest and has many actors, some actors that are not in it for the right reasons, some who are. And it's not to say that what we have now is a perfect solution, but it has started to introduce a sense of consequence and reputation to what people say. And those people who own the same items suddenly are willing to coordinate in new ways. I think that's what we see next is that people will say, Hey, why don't we start producing some new assets for a game together? Why don't we start investing together because we all own the same thing. And so I think that's what we're seeing is the internet went through this top down phase, then it went through a sort of more anarchic, everyone can have a podcast phase and now web three sort of bringing governance back to the internet and allowing people to separate signal from noise.
0: But can you also say that the introduction of any new technology is just kind of, there's always this initial anarchic period, but it ends up getting recuperated into structures of hierarchy and power pretty quickly. I'm sure writing is a great example of this where Luther is able to distribute his pamphlets because of the printable type, but it's also the same technology that's utilized for uh, mass education by the state. Um, we can look at other technologies like the radio you know the, the Bolsheviks during the Russian civil war you know saw how important it was to seize it as a means of you know controlling the airwaves and basically using these technologies that may have had initial kind of uh, anarchic potential or disruptive potential but it gets still recuperated into the state at the end of the day and I think you kind of see you can kind of track how this occurred with the internet where a lot of social media now that was initially you know lauded for launching things like the arab spring ends up becoming part of this wider yes i see what you, you mean you know it's never it's never it's never part of the government right but it, it it becomes so entrenched and indistinguishable from the prevailing structures of governance that you can't really see the difference anymore and you know i could i could see the same thing happen to something like nfts Wherein, you know, you could use those instead of a passport or a marker of citizenship, right? Yes, um,
1: yes. I think you're, so yes, let, let's dig into this. So I think continuing to use the reformation as an analog is useful. I'll just keep doing that until you stop me, <laughs> but uh, the, so there's a good, there's a good book, it's Bradford Gregory's The Unintended Reformation. Some critics dislike it, but it's a good book. I'll just vouch for it. Um, and basically. He sort of outlines this process by which the Reformation begins, central authorities challenged, and a million sects proliferate, and it causes a pretty immense amount of conflict, and no participant in that conflict really desired for or believed that would be the outcome. Every Protestant sect thought they were the last one, but none of them were because there were always different sources of authority you could appeal to, whether that's saying, "Hey, our religion is right because we truly care about the Word of God as written in Scripture," another says that's actually, you know, not uh, the correct source of authority. It's really about spirit. It's about like the feeling of God, and it's about replicating the communities that uh, you know Jesus formed. So you have like Anabaptists or more like Lutherans as more textual and sort of a more conservative variant off of uh, Catholicism. So you have this, and then. The way the conflict is resolved is that all of these nation states that are another emerging trend at the same time, right? Concurrently doing their own thing and feeding off of this process, mutually reinforcing each other, they say, hey, you know, that's enough. (laughs) This has gotten insane. There can't be a revolution every, you know, 30 years. Um, And so Protestant sects get picked as favorites by nation states. And some states decide we're gonna stick with Catholicism. They lock it down, they remove all dissent. And then, you know, in the case of England, it's the Anglican Church, Church of Scotland goes into more what Americans would consider Presbyterian direction. And so you have that process where there's this wave of entropy and then there's consolidation. Um, and I think with the internet right now, we're seeing a few different paths because different societies are really running different operating systems that permit them to behave differently in response to this wave of dissent and entropy. So what you have is one path, which is Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Google, whatever, gets sort of incorporated into the state. And maybe some societies will completely tolerate that. And then all, all conversation becomes moderated. That's sort of probably more the CCP route. And then it may or may not be the European route. Um, and then what you have on the American side in particular is like it's deep anti-authoritarianism and sort of liberal norms which don't permit us to clamp down in the same way. People immediately, you know, are up in arms about any sort of control of these platforms or incorporation of them into the state and it's constantly a source of friction. People rightfully sense that there's something consequential being decided here. And so what you've seen is take bitcoin, which is a technology really I think if we know anything about Satoshi it's like he's probably, you know, he's probably American or someone deeply indebted to uh, sort of liberal philosophy, anti-authoritarian philosophy. And, And so you see this alternate where it says, okay, perhaps we consolidate with nation states just taking control of these apparatuses, or in the US that feels like a less certain path that will actually align around it. And then what is the alternative? Web3 potentially is an alternative to saying, what if we make this more governable? I think the answer will be a synthesis, right? There'll be both. Like the government is going to, over time, restrict the scope of speech, almost definitely like more than it is today. Hopefully not. I'm not, you know, in many ways not rooting for that, but there's that, like there's this authoritarian tendency, which I consider deeply pessimistic, especially in the U.S. because I don't believe it will be done well. Um, and then you have this sort of renewed sense of like, okay, can we roll up our sleeves and govern ourselves collectively from the bottom up? Are there new tools we can use to govern the internet as free people? And that that's
0: kind of what I see web three as. What are some, what are some projects specifically that, you know, have various bottom up models that you, you know, because I'm sure, you know, the nation state is only one form of a top-down hierarchy, right? You know, the, the relationship to a the God King is another form of a top-down one. And, and likewise, I'm sure there are, you know, very different ways of a horizontal or bottom-up form of social organization. Um, You know, in the 20th century, you had all these attempts by, by communists and anarchists with very specific sort of ideological justifications for why they had to create this sort of, you know, utopian form of social organization. But it was oftentimes based in this very humanistically oriented form of like, emancipation, right? It's about making a human being who can uh, exercise his freedoms to the fullest. And that just sort of seems to be a very common recurrence through any kind of bottom-up form of social organization. Like where would you see the difference for methods of the future?
1: Yeah. So I think on the top-down side, like the American inheritance right now is that we're coming out of this sort of like peak... Neoliberal period, in which corporations came to displace the state um, in the name of like free trade and free enterprise, and and I think in many you know there's good elements of that, but the element that was not like kind of widely considered at the time, at least not by people with decision-making power, or maybe it was, maybe it wasn't hard to say, but was that hey we're gonna give these groups more free range. But then they're obviously going to capture the state in some ways, and the regulatory apparatus will be captured by people who worked in the private sector, uh, and companies become the actual levers of how government policy is executed. That most government bureaucracies are not super effectual right now. Uh, it's a broad statement, but you know I'm willing to make it for now. Uh, uh, and the and so a lot so so corporations become the sort of high functioning centers of gravity where it's like something with like COVID occurs and really who are the institutions that matter most? Like it's almost definitely Amazon, right? Or Walmart Um, and it's not the government. Uh, The the government during COVID felt like kind of a strange TV show that you could watch occasionally and sort of hear vague ideas around masks that were not overly consistent um, and sort of weird things about vaccinations. Even on the vaccine side, it's really private enterprise that, you know, actually did it Um, and so, um, and so I think that's where we're at is that cor- like corporations for some amount of good and plenty of trouble, you know, trouble are now elevated. And so for the U S in turning towards a more top-down system, should it, you know, go in that direction, it feels as though it's corporations that are best poised to do that. To me, that seems like a future that's untenable. People won't accept it. Um, and also the legitimacy these groups have is virtually none. Right. It's a, uh, every single one of these big companies is like broadly disliked, uh, you know, even for, by people who use them every day, which is kind of like sort of an amazing accomplishment. Uh, and uh, and so to me, I just look at it in the US and I say, is there really, is the government really revved up to, you know, reassert itself in this way? It feels like no, um, and then companies certainly are, but they have virtually no legitimacy um, Rightfully so, because they're not meant to be the government. That's not the agreement people forged with them. And so, I look at, I look at it, and I say, okay, America has a rich history of bottom-up organization. Like it, it's kind of like a cliche to mention it, but like Tocqueville, like his that's his take on America, right? Is wow, there's really no one in charge here, and it's all these sort of bottom-up church affiliations and a patchwork of different state jurisdictions that are doing things, but they're getting a lot done, and. Uh, And so I think like pre-Civil War America provides like kind of an interesting model there just in terms of the relationship between people and the government. Um, And that will lead to new problems, of course, but it is doable. And then web three to me is like people who are perhaps 16 right now, don't see a group to attach themselves to and end up opting into communities where they're able to actually make a good deal of money, um, meet people they like and that I think Right now, there's a subculture experimenting with the future and soon, you know, many people will find their way into these groups, people who are like-minded around a religious faith, people who are like-minded around particular political leanings or cultural affinities, whatever. I think we'll see a proliferation of this. And I guess in terms of concrete examples within Web3, it's like, I think the NFT side of it is the most promising. Everything else is kind of plumbing. And that's not in a bad way. Plumbing is important, but everything else is kind of plumbing. You can look at say the history of Ethereum and say, there's a lot of bottom up association around open source people developing like a sort of incredibly complex distributed machine that, ex- that that is promising. But then on the NFT side, it really is people creating brands out of nowhere. People wearing kind of merchandise and markings meeting up on a regular conference circuit to hang out with each other. It's it's a sort of bottom up organization with enough energy that I have just honestly I just haven't really seen before, um, and right now I'm really just you know basing that based on the vitality that it gives off, and it's a question of like will it be directed towards more broadly accessible and publicly useful means or, or ends? That's a that's kind of the question.
0: Right. There's this interesting aspect of it though, where the sort of financial incentive for a lot of these people to you know make money creating NFTs and building the subcultures and and DAOs around it, they are still very enmeshed with like, you know, traditional forms of, of society, right? They're, they're using the same currency. There's, you know, I, I don't, I, I haven't seen DAOs that kind of explicitly are trying to create like a, any kind of political foundation for the future. How, how exactly do you see like the sort of tension between this this form of like horizontal organization between people that's still like so thoroughly based around like the economics of, you know, and and the very sort of, you know, I I wouldn't say the, the, you know, we live in a free market economy. I think there's obviously a lot of like fine tuning and command, uh, components that go into running behemoths like Amazon and Walmart, and they're kind of enmeshed with the government too. Right. So how does, how do you really use the, same currency they use and try to build a different world with it like how do you how do you build a cryptocurrency that doesn't get replaced by the by the fed coin because how do you how do you know it's just not a matter of time
1: yeah i mean i the first is you know we don't know for sure there's many ways this could could go i think i can basically just point to lines that lead in either direction and it'll be a question of which ones become sort of self-reinforcing feedback loops and which ones dissipate or are Kind of crushed by something else, um, and so one through line I would say on the kind of sort of more emancipatory route, where it's like this actually becomes a sort of piece of infrastructure held in common. People are using it in a bottom-up fashion. It's pretty much separate from these older institutions and has real autonomy. Is you know again, and I keep citing this one because I really believe it's the most interesting thing happening in crypto right now. Is that with the with the when it comes to NFTs. You have these new markers of status uh, entrant, you know, entryways into different communities, and everything is denominated in ETH, or in some cases, the L1 tokens of other blockchains they're being traded on. This is the first time I've seen a huge amount of commerce be denominated in Ethereum. It's the first time. Uh, and, you know, prior to that, yeah, agreed. Like this sort of Bitcoin as money thing, you know, could come to pass if there's some, you know, major event or series of events that does it. But what you're seeing in the like kind of Web3 community, as opposed to just crypto, is that now there's this whole class of luxury and community-oriented goods that are denominated in ETH. And I think what you'll see there is that right now, it's just a bunch of IP with nowhere to go. What we're working on and what I'm excited about is, I think this will infiltrate like the biggest entertainment genre in the world, which is gaming. Um, And the gaming really is like the public square or the common space for people, you know, arguably below the age of 30, uh, maybe higher for some. And I think it's going to infiltrate that space. I think it will make games dramatically more fun, more communitarian, more generative. That's what we're working on. And I think that will be an access route to like a dramatically broader audience and a path towards this more optimistic kind of emancipatory future. The kind of, you know, less optimistic route is that, okay, you know, US dollar backed coins are just this dominant and important part of commerce and crypto for pretty much everything but NFTs. They definitely are dominant in DeFi. Um, and that those coins are really just existing because no one's bothered to regulate them uh, thoroughly. And that could change. And, uh, and we'll see what people come up with and are able to, to do there to preserve it. Um, but yeah, so I think there's a couple through lines I really think like consumer culture and entertainment are just extremely vital, and that if crypto develops a synergistic relationship with those two things. It'll be very hard to stop, um, but you know we'll see.
0: Well, let's focus on this more positive outlook, and you know there's really nothing more post-human than than the MMO. You know there's a, there's a complete uh, replacement of you know looking for sources of status from the physical world and transposing it onto the digital one. You know, I, <laughs> I used to play tons of world of Warcraft. So like I, I know this, I know this one firsthand and I'm sure anyone under the age of 30, as you mentioned, has kind of at least come into contact with this world. But, you know, to me, it, it, to me, it is like kind of post-human in this very real sense, because you are basically, tra- you know, you're taking models of community That are very idealistic like you know guilds or or clans and uh like meritocratic you know competence-based hierarchies that emerge in these you know digital landscapes but there's always a cost in in that that that's taking away time from you know building community in the real world right that's like literally a post-human version of yourself because you are basically you're changing the scene completely to one where it doesn't really have that much of a real world effect, despite the fact, you know, you're still physically embodied, you know, you're, you, uh, you're, you're not eating digital food or, you know, it, it doesn't sustain you in the same way or fulfill you, I think. So how, how do we kind of like look at the digital communities we build and the economies we kind of build around them as, as being sustaining in that way? How do we integrate them correctly?
1: Yeah. So I think first, you know, there's this, I could at least like the, the kind of broad impression I think someone can get from what you said is, you know, this sort of like very matrix future whereby people are just spending all their time in digital spaces and neglecting the real world, etc. So, you know, is there a risk of that possibly? I think it's a low one, very low one uh, in that. Um, if you gaming isn't really competing with the real world as much as it is competing with television and social networks um and so the out you know if you're like you know of like the baby boomer generation you're probably spending a huge amount of time watching television which right is arguably more detached from the real world than a game because Definitely. a game <laughs> a game you're interacting with especially a multiplayer game you're interacting with real people talking to them you have pretty rich communitarian experiences and you meet all kinds of people and many gaming guilds meet up in real life and do real things together. Um, and then you have the feed, which is more attached to the real world than a television show. Um, but is I think pretty deeply perverse, or at least the ways it's been executed on so far are deeply perverse. Uh, there's benefits to it, of course, like it's good and bad, but like, largely it's like, uh, I mean, I don't need to say all the things everyone already knows, you know, algorithmic based feeds, attention suck, plays up controversy and like provocative content over everything else. Like that's kind of the paradigm we're in. Um, And so for me, gaming is competing with those things. And I think it's a way better substitute, like dramatically better uh, in that it is game experiences are mediated by the basic like human speech and interaction where if you're being an asshole, someone will actually tell you to stop. Whereas on social media, you can pretty much say anything forever. And you know, there's not really an end to it. You can be as toxic as you like. Um, and so that's like, the, that's one of the, the bull cases for this. The other is that if people are actually forging deep ties in their kind of virtual leisure time, which television is included in that, and so it's a substitute for that, they can go on and do other things in the real world. And that isn't deterministically true, but it's something I for one would really want to motivate, which is say I'm, a kid, and I have, you know, I, li- I have a good aesthetic sensibility. I am making t-shirts or wearables for a game. There is no reason why if people really demand them in the virtual world, which is low cost to produce in. You can't use that to create something in the real world. Or, hey, I put on a church service in a game, which already occurs regularly. Um, there is no reason why that can't translate into building a church in real life. Should that be useful? Um, and so, for me, I just see it as like deeply more communitarian much more genuine human interaction than television or social networks and just better on a whole. And then, and so, you know, will these things become more immersive? Will people spend a lot of time in them? Sure. Will they spend much more time in them than people spend watching TV? It's like, that's hard to top. Um, And so, yeah, that's sort of how I view it is, it's actually a more promising form of virtual entertainment for sustaining the real world than television or social networks
0: are. Yeah, there's this very interesting element you know, to games and and also to an extent, social media, wherein you're able to, you know, communicate with anyone around the world still. And I've personally had, you know, friendships and very interesting opportunities come up as a result of meeting people I've met from digital settings, right? So there is this kind of aspect wherein they actually serve as perfectly good bridges. Yes.
1: That's the dream of the internet. It's funny. That's the dream. And it's a dream that's really only realized by dating apps, <laughs> which is, I mean, it, Tinder, it's a, Tinder does it. Twitter does it too. You know, some other social networking sites do. People use Instagram in the right way and they get a lot out of it. There's just a hell of a lot more people who don't use it the right way, I think, you know, and some people do. You know, like people just share, you, know, you share a picture of your dog, you're talking to some people who you went to high school with. That's all good. You know, that's good stuff in my book. And then there are people doing the kind of parasocial like dopamine draining kind of thing. Uh, which is, I think, the failure mode for it. But I totally agree. It's like the original dream of the internet was to connect people with others. That was why we we're doing this. And then we've kind of gotten away from that and it's become this sort of advertising dopamine factory. And that's kind of where you want to get away from. That's the that's the parasitic force is something like Facebook or you know Instagram. It's not ro- true of the platforms on a whole, but it's a strong tendency they have. And that's really the thing you want to shut down and that's the thing you want to retire, and uh, and so yeah, it's like in a weird way, like something like Tinder, like that's what I kind of when I was like, I was like, oh yeah, cool. So I'm in a chat room, and then maybe I'll meet up with someone in person. You know, that's what those dating apps do. I think gaming has a lot more potential to do that than any of these services.
0: But how how do how exactly are you know the, you know Facebook and and all the traditional forms of social media they kind of succeeded because of their failure modes, they were able to exploit, Mm -hmm. you know, human vanity and creating negative forms of attention in order to generate more ad revenue. Right. So like how, and and I guess, you know, the whole concept of generating money through ads is kind of what could lead to the algorithmic tweaks that created those failure modes for human interaction in the first place. You know, how do you, uh, how, how, how are. What what are better ways of restructuring that?
1: That's, it's a great, there is a way, I think, you know, we're going to find out, I guess over the coming years, but, um, so you have, you're totally spot on that the service has to latch on to some kind of vital energy. Like it has to, it has to be that there's some relentless tendency people have, and the service has to play into that in order to grow. There's almost no other way it can't, you know, there's been all these attempts at like zen social media you know there's been like lots of startups that have tried this and in the end zen social media just doesn't get people to stay you know that's the so that you're pointing to a hard constraint that's correct and my view is that like crypto the vice of crypto the kind of very vital and like strong vice is speculation and people kind of wanting to trade assets of value that's like a completely innate trait um and it's fueled itself off of that in a big way And I think that will remain a pretty vital force for the space. It's one that can be done more responsibly or less, but it's a vital force for the, for it And the sort of more benign version of that to me is just reorienting the relationship that a user has with a service. So with Facebook, you're basically just being sort of coaxed and entreated to stay so that value can be extracted from you. And if you're lucky and if you do the right things, you know, you might have some benefit from being there too, rather than just being kind of sucked into it with Web three services and very much what we're planning on doing. Uh, we're trying to forge a new relationship with the user, where they're truly a stakeholder in the platform they participate in. Is there some way they can share in the growth of the platform? In you know more rich community experiences. If there are scarce commodities tied to the game, can they you know uh, benefit from you know earning them, winning them? Uh, that to me is a different paradigm where people look at tech services, they don't even think of them as that anymore because the word is just not even appealing. And they say, you know what? This is something I have a claim on. This is something I have a true you know, stake in. Uh, and maybe even to some degree, the ability to govern, that's a more thorny topic because it just has so many practical problems. But um, that's the future to me, is people are sick of getting like a standard issue phone with standard issue apps, you know, that are governed by some overlord. And what they want is a digital space that feels like their home, that feels like a place that's theirs, that they govern, they have autonomy over, and where people they care about can congregate. That to me, when you say you have this drive to an end state that is good, and if it's fueled by a desire for people to have a piece of things, that's a, that's a a that feels like a winning formula. That's what I think is the
0: unrealized
1: potential of the space.
0: Right. And in terms of bringing that space from hypothetical into reality is that what you kind of see with your projects like nifty island yeah that,
1: that's correct yeah so for us we're sort of a, like our goal we we call the company nift that's the studio and our goal is to help people find purpose and belonging on the internet uh through social and gaming technologies that's the that's the goal and we're building an open social game world built by the users, one that's delightful to interact with and radically open to people creating their own content for it and making it a space that's just delightfully surprising where you come in and it's not like playing Assassin's Creed where you sort of come to know what devs do and there's a growing kind of cynicism around AAA titles. The future is user generated content for sure. And so for us, we say, hey, come and make the platform great with us and then come and you know, find ways of having a more autonomous relationship with it, uh, earning scarce commodities that are tied to the game. These are, for me, that's the winning formula. And so our game is comprised of kind of a network of user curated islands that can be used to play games on socialize, uh, show off what you own form community and then create content, novel game logic, 3d assets, etc. This is sort of like, you know, it's uh, yeah, this is, this is it. I basically think that a gaming platform will supplant uh, some of the big dominant social media giants and it can be done in a better way. That's what we want to do. Um, I really believe that the hold that some of these platforms have on the market is far more tenuous than it appears. And that if you were in the sort of C-suite of like an Instagram, Facebook, you'd probably detect a lot more anxiety than you'd expect where basically generation shift, generations are fickle. They like different things and you can just be on the wrong end of a generational shift. And suddenly Facebook is not cool. How long is it until Instagram is not cool? These are like very fickle things. And so I view it as like much more broadly open for competition than it appears. And I think a web three enabled game world is to me, the best path. That's the best path I've thought of to try and shake things up.
0: And in terms of what that would look like. It's, it's sort of like a blend between say the creative potential of Minecraft or Roblox with the complexity of social organization and, you know, sense of personal ownership of like second life. Right. Is that what we're kind of looking at? That's right. I think,
1: yeah, I think you have to take the discipline that traditional gaming has had towards fun and usability and injecting that with more openness and autonomy and consequence. These are the things that are exciting to me. Um, and so, yeah, that's right. It's, you know, why can't a progr- why can't a platform like Roblox supplant something like Facebook? Like, I don't, I don't see why not personally. And I think there'll be ways to engage with these platforms asynchronously too. So it's not a matter of people just sitting at their computer. It's a matter of people seeing that as a home base where they sit down and they interact with it in the evenings. And why can't it also be the place where they chat and keep in touch with friends to me, I think it's a dramatically more charismatic product, at least there's the potential for one amidst a product that's just
0: kind of widely like disliked, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, you know, just to somewhat return to what we were discussing earlier, one one aspect of all of our social organizations that we're kind of uh, maybe not forced to, to use, but we certainly rely on in a way that we don't really consent to in a real sense is there, there is kind of this disappearance of legitimacy in a, in our political systems and our economic ones. Right. And that's something that's very different from the past 300 years or the origin of humanism as a political project and human emancipation as a goal is that the systems that govern us are fundamentally something that's meant to be within our control. And our security that we are able to do so, our security within that fact or notion is is sort of what lends them their their power. And you know, we, we give this we in in the age of mass democracy, the state had you know this very large you know uh, mandate to to you know wage wars to create public works projects of massive scale. And even if it's seemed to be in this very, uh, top down or heavy handed manner, it was often kind of the genuine expression of like a popular mandate to do so. Like people were happy with that.
1: Yeah. But now we
0: live in this period where that, that sort of legitimacy or, you know, it's a chicken or the egg question of what, what faded first is the capacity or the legitimacy, but yes you know, reconstructing these these sort of, you know, re- reconstructing our own like social organizations from person to person is almost like a stepping stone toward returning to the, where that was even like possible to initiate, right?
1: Yes. And so that sort of like crisis of legitimacy, I think is very cute right now. But I also think it's just been a characteristic of modernity from the beginning. And that basically like the kind of story that isn't told as much about like modern events, is that, you know, there's just been basically waves of social changes that cause, call everything into question. So like take the rise of like industrialism in the UK, it's something that completely disrupted rural life, sent people into the cities, totally changed how they identify and what cultural groupings would even survive that. Um, And then there's a need to try to make these things shore up legitimacy in the wake of that. And so you have things like a fun example, another UK driven example is like a lot of lore around like pastoralism and people wearing kilts, kind of like Scottish Highlands culture. Some of that is very real and great. Some of that is stuff that got like, you know, wildly exaggerated and used to kind of create an image of the past and the present that made the current forms look more reasonable. Uh, And so What you can kind of, the way I look at it is, this is a process that's like deeply contingent and like pretty risky, is that there's gonna be waves of disruption. They're very unlikely to stop, uh, you know, unless like the industrial base collapses or something like that. And even then it's not gonna be a static picture. And people are continuously having to sort of invent and find their way towards some new stability that may be a totally unideal arrangement. And what I look at is, is saying like, you know, this is my most kind of like crazy, you know, pro web three stance is that basically, you know, is there a possibility for a more flexible set of ways of governing human life that are more enduring and adaptable, they're immutable in some ways, they are adaptable in others, that actually could provide a more stable arrangement for people to continue to innovate and disrupt, because that's not stopping, it's sort of a given, it has to keep going. largely because if you slow down, someone else will speed up and you'll lose. Um, that's like the kind of, like sad, in a way, sad reality of it. Um, and so to me, like there is a possibility for some sort of social operating system that is more enduring, that has less social contingency, and that allows people to govern themselves. And then in terms of like, you know, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Like, I think we see, this is where I kind of call for some humility around what our ideals are and what's achievable there's a sort of like emancipatory maximalism that is in humanism and you find in a lot of like contemporary american political ideologies and to me some of those drives are you know not reasonable some of them are very good Uh, and so when you look at like what does freedom look like it's sort of like more like the serenity prayer right it's sort of having the you know the serenity to accept the things you can't change and the courage to change the things you can wisdom to know the difference all that like that's sort of what i call for in the piece really is saying if you want like freedom say you want you don't want a top-down government that runs everything that's going to mean submitting yourself to some sort of more localized order like almost definitely it still has to be governed somehow and so that's going to mean making compromises with yourselves and others and governing, and that may mean subjecting yourself to a localized group. It may mean subjecting yourself to a smart contract. You're going to be subject to something on some level. And so that's, again, the motivation for the piece is really to say like, there are these ideals that are just not reasonable and are born out of a really heady, weird period of human history, which we are exiting. And that if we want to think more reasonably about how we govern ourselves, there has to be some humility grounding even an idea like emancipation or human freedom in some realities. You don't want top-down government. That means you want government bottom-up and that still means some form of governance. Um, so anyway, that's, uh, that's what I have to say about that.
0: Yeah, Charles, I think that was really well put. And I think that's actually a good place to leave off. I think we're just about out of time. Beautiful. Uh, you can find Charles's article, Confronting Modernity Means Overcoming Humanism in Palladium 5, Centralizing Society, which you can find at uh, palladiummagcom slash subscribe. Uh, Charles, thanks for coming back. It's great to speak with you. Likewise. All right, everyone. That's all for now. We'll see you next time.